Pastor Brandon along with us, and uh, as I mentioned earlier, he's a missionary serving in Mexico, and uh, so Brother Brandon, I'm just going to have you come on up and uh, tell us about your ministry there, brother, and then uh, preach the word to us, and we're uh, blessed to have you with us today, brother. I'm honored to be here, and I'm glad to meet all of you, and I hope to shake hands with those of you who I didn't get a chance to just now. Um, my first time preaching in Arkansas, and I uh, really admired the beauty of the, the road out here. I didn't know that my GPS was going to take me through Oklahoma, but I saw the Wichita forests and all sorts of beautiful scenes, the mountains and the, the forests, and I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful for your pastor. My name is Brandon Long. I'm originally from Bowling Green, Kentucky. Um, grew up sort of in the sticks. And uh, the Lord in his providence allowed me to know Mexico when I was 13 years old and to be involved in mission trips since I was a very young teenager. Um, and in the last um, 10 years, the Lord opened up opportunity for me to be able to be involved in church planning. Um, I studied in a seminary in Monterey briefly. I went to a Bible college in the United States for a while, and it was there that I met uh, Joseph and my mutual friend, Brother Austin Wiest. But um, I've been in the city of Reynosa, just outside of Reynosa now, which is about where I'm at, about an hour south of McAllen, Texas. And I've uh, been there for eight years in August, marks eight years, and um, been planning a church. And uh, little by little, the Lord has given growth. We started meeting in our house. We had a house church for three years. And then God, in his grace, allowed us to find a piece of land outside of the city. And we met under trees for a year and a half. And then uh, he's given us a building. But Reynosa is a huge city. Um, a lot of people, they think that, you know, maybe Mexico City is big. Or, or I don't think people tend to understand, even in Mexico, how many people are arriving daily to the city of Reynosa. Um, we have people from all over the republic who go to work in the factories that American companies like Black & Decker and Microsoft and other companies have, huge factories in Reynosa. So we, all 32 of the states of the Mexican Republic send workers to live and work in Reynosa. So we have many, many people who need to hear the gospel, and the Lord has opened a door for us to preach to them. Um, recently, especially in the last uh, two years, um, immigrants from all over Central and South America and also um, from Caribbean islands like the Dominican Republic and Haiti have arrived to Mexico and many of you have been aware I'm sure of sort of a crisis of immigrants and um, everybody throws their hands up we don't really know what the solution is to dealing with all of these people and housing and, and but the Lord has opened recently in the last several months um, with other brothers who have come down from a church in San Antonio they began evangelizing, and through the grapevine, I met these brothers, and our church has been able to participate now in evangelizing and hopefully beginning to work with Haitians as well, which is novel because many of them speak English or French or Haitian Creole, and it's a novelty to be able to speak English in Mexico for once. But um, the Lord has been so good to me, saving me and allowing me to preach his word and uh, I'm blessed to meet you and to see how um, you've received Brother Joseph. And uh, I just pray that you would keep our ministry in Reynosa in your prayers. Pray that God would open hearts and minds and eyes to the gospel. Reynosa is a city given over to a lot of religion. 
We have the Roman Catholic Church, which constitutes, I would say, the majority of religion in Reynosa, but we're also flooded with cults, with Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses. And one of the movements now that has influenced so heavily the culture in Latin America, especially the religious landscape, is the charismatic movement, which has a totally different understanding, I believe, of the person and work of Christ and God and our relation to God. And it makes it hard. We present the gospel, but we also have to call attention to the misrepresentations of the gospel and the person of Christ. So that's a challenge for us. But the Lord has been good. Um, little by little, he's been adding to his church. And uh, our greatest prayer is that the Lord would send more laborers to Reynosa. We have over a million people now in a, a city. And the city is in itself big, uh, covers a, a large territory. And uh, we pray for laborers that the Lord would send um, families and people with sound doctrine to preach the gospel to the people of Reynosa. So I would invite you to pray for that. Um, and uh, I guess after the service, uh, any questions you have, I'd be glad to answer. But if you have your Bibles, look with me in the book of Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10. I don't read very many pew studies or pulpit studies, but a while ago I remember reading um, some different interviews with pastors and with lay teachers and preachers. And the question was posed, what is your favorite book in the Bible? And many um, would undeniably say that it's the book of Romans because it's such a complete book. It presents to us the doctrine of Christ um, in, in so many different ways, the implications of the doctrine of Christ. It presents to us the, the, the topic of the Jews, the Jewish people and their religion and their rejection of Christ. And this passage is a passage that deals with this. But look with me in verse 1. And we'll read a bit, and then after, before entering into the text, we'll pray. First one says, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. For Moses describeth the righteousness which is of the law, that the man which doeth these things shall live by them. But the righteousness which is of faith speaketh on this wise. Say not in thine heart, who shall ascend into heaven? That is to bring down, uh, to bring Christ down from above. Or who shall ascend into the, dip, into the deep? That is to bring Christ up again from the dead. But what saith it? The word is nigh thee, even in thy mouth and in thy heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture saith, Whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. So there's no difference between the Jew and the Greek. 
For the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon him. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this day. And we thank you for your word. It's quick and powerful. Your word teaches us who Christ is, the value of his person, the value of his sacrifice. Your word teaches us also to understand ourselves rightly. It teaches us the depravity of our sin, the sinfulness of sin. And it demonstrates to us the impossibility of reaching God or obtaining salvation by our own merits and works. And we ask, Father, today that you would make plain to us the doctrine of Christ, that he would be exalted and demonstrated clearly in the scriptures as our only hope in life and death, as the only Savior. And may we see his value, Lord, that you would show us the glory of God in the face of Christ and see how precious he is to God may be precious to us also. If there's any here this morning who have not come to Christ for salvation, we pray, Father, that you would work through the means of the preaching to bring them to him. And those who have grown cold or distant, that you would draw them close. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. In this passage, the Apostle Paul lets us feel a little bit of his heart for his own people according to the flesh. The Jewish people had done a terrible deed. They had crucified Christ, blasphemed his name, accused his disciples of being liars and blasphemers. And Paul, now being a converted servant of Christ, years into the gospel ministry, demonstrates his heart's desire to see his people saved. In chapter 9, the first five verses demonstrate this as well. We see a sort of a strong language from the Apostle Paul. Listen to this. He says, I say the truth in Christ, I lie not, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost, that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart. For I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, who are Israel, to whom pertaineth the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the service of God and the promises, whose are the fathers and of whom, as concerning the flesh, Christ came, who is over all, God blessed forever. Amen. Paul demonstrates that his desire for the salvation of his own people according to the flesh was so strong that he himself would be accursed, anathema. There's a certain sense in which the unbelief of Israel is ironic. Ironic in the sense that the word of God was first given to them. The oracles of God were delivered to the the Hebrews. They received the law. They received the messianic promise in the Old Testament with all of its types and prophecies, which so clearly point to Christ. And this morning in the book of Hebrews, we're looking at all the shadows, which were an echo of that which was to come, which is Christ. Romans 2 talks about that advantage that the Jew has, which the Gentile did not, that the oracles of God were given to them, that they had 
the law of God, which pointed to Christ and in its types, its prophecies, and also in its way of revealing sin in our own hearts and in our own life. But why hadn't the Jews believed? Why had they rejected Christ? Well, we could ask the question, why do men today reject Christ? We might ask, why don't all the people of Mexico trust in Christ? Or why don't all the people in Van Buren, Arkansas, or in Oklahoma, or in Kentucky, or in Texas, why don't they trust Christ? And in many cases, perhaps the answer would be that they aren't acquainted with the message of Christ. But rather, they've received a false teaching. Perhaps in Mexico, the answer would be that many have received a false understanding of the gospel or a false message concerning Christ, and they're placing their faith in a Christ that is unknown to the scriptures. Or we could look to other parts of the world, maybe Mongolia or the famous North Sentinel Island, which missionaries have tried to arrive to to preach the gospel on its shores only to be killed. Or the natives in the middle of the Amazon, and we, we could conclude that these people don't trust Christ because they've never heard his name and they've never heard his gospel preached. And this same passage testifies to the importance of taking the gospel to the whole world. How then shall they believe if there's not a preacher? And how shall someone preach to them unless they be sent? And faith is by hearing and hearing by the word of God. But this is not the case for the Jewish people. They had benefited from the most powerful and illumined and straightforward preaching that the world had ever known. We think of those gifted preachers of the Old Testament who preached of the coming Messiah to the Jewish people. We think of John the Baptist and Christ himself, and then post-resurrection and, and on the day of Pentecost when Peter and John stood and boldly proclaimed that Christ, the one that these people had crucified, was their Messiah, and they must repent and believe on him. And then we think of the young deacon, Stephen, martyred, arrested, and taken before the council, and he boldly proclaimed Christ to them. We cannot say that the Jewish people, especially in Israel, that they had remained in unbelief because of a lack of preaching. There was no lack of preaching among the Jews. The overwhelming Jewish majority had rejected Christ, not because of a lack of intellectual knowledge, but because of a rejection of knowledge. Look at verse 2. I bear them record. They have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. Now, this is interesting. Many Americans that I speak to sort of are under this idea or this persuasion that if we could only convince the Jewish people that Jesus is our Messiah, as if the Jewish people were totally unaware of what Christians believe. Um, if, we could, if we could only convince them, it's like as if Christ was this missing puzzle piece that they've ignorantly not been able to see for the last two millennia. But if you read Jewish scholarship and if you read rabbinical studies, I believe most Jewish scholars, read Maimonides and read some of the other Jewish scholars. I believe that they could probably tell you what Christians believe better than many Christians could today. There's no lack of, of knowledge, at least intellectual knowledge, of the Christian position among the Jews. Why, then, have they rejected Christ? Why have they not believed on Him? And the answer is contained in the very same book of Romans. Look at chapter 11 and verse 7. 
This is what the scripture says. What then? Israel hath not obtained that which he seeketh for, but the election hath obtained it, and the rest were blinded. According as it is written, God hath given them the spirit of slumber. I like what the ESV says. It reflects what the Spanish Bible says. A spirit of stupor, of ignorance, stupidity. God has given them a spirit of slumber, eyes that should not see, and ears that they should not hear unto this day. And David saith, let their table be made a snare, and a trap, and a stumbling block, and a recompense unto them. Let their eyes be darkened that they may not see, and bow down their back alway. Why had Israel not believed? Not because of a lack of the gospel presence, not because of a lack of preaching, not because of total ignorance, but because God had blinded them. How had Israel been blinded? Now this is a topic which many feel uncomfortable talking about, that God and His sovereign will would blind the hearts of sinners and would turn them away. But how has God blinded Israel? What means had God used to cover their eyes from seeing the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ? Why is it that we, by the grace of God and by the operation of His Spirit, can look at Christ and say that He is precious and that He is altogether lovely and that He is more valuable than anything and everything? How had Israel been blinded? Verse 3 tells us, they being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. What was the means of their blinding? It was their own religion. It was their own tradition and their own customs. God simply allowed them to continue in their belief and their own righteousness and their supposition that their righteousness and their own acts according to the law could somehow gain them saving merit before God. The works-based religion of rabbinical Judaism, which set out to establish its own righteousness, had blinded the Jewish people and had blinded them until today, even today, this clinging to the law as a means of justification before God. Their desire to establish their own righteousness, their fixation on the value of their own works, of their own righteousness, it had covered their eyes. It was like a veil. Apostle Paul speaks to the Corinthian church as, as a veil. The unbelief of the Jews was a veil. It was like a, a piece of cloth in front of their eyes which didn't let them see the glory of Christ. And only by the operation of the Holy Spirit drawing them sovereignly to Christ could they understand who He is and see the glory of God in His face. They were veiled. Now not all had been veiled God preserved a remnant, God in His grace to be faithful to His promises so that none could accuse Him of being unfaithful and having forgotten this people. God saved a remnant. But here the Scripture teaches us that God, through the religiousness of Jewish people, had allowed them to remain in unbelief, had blinded them concerning Christ. They believe that law-keeping would save them. But I love the clarity of this passage in verse 4. It teaches us the end of the law, the purpose of the law. It says, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that 
believeth. Now, this was one of the main teachings of the book of Galatians. Also, we see it in the book of Ephesians. We see it in the book of Romans. What is the purpose of the law? Now, the, 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 the answer, I'm trying to say it in Spanish, the answer to this is different between the Jews and the Christian. The Jewish people look at the law as a list of rules by which one must abide to be counted righteous before God. And this is what religion teaches. The long list of rules that you must do, the in and out, the day in and day out, the waking up and going to bed, always trying to please God through your own effort. But the Christian, illumined by the Scriptures, can say that the law was never given to justify but to condemn but to demonstrate our insufficiency and at the same time point to the one who is altogether sufficient, and it's Christ. It points to the righteousness of Christ, which I could never live up to. It shows me Him who carried the law on His back and lived under it perfectly. He who lived in my place as my representative before God, as my head, as the new Adam, as my representative. That's Christ. So the end of the law is Christ. The end of the law, that the law points to Christ and convinces of Christ to the end that those convicted of their sin by the law would place their faith in Him and be declared righteous and be clothed in the righteousness and the the holiness and the wisdom of Christ. This is the end of the law. But this silly clinging to the law as a means of justification before God had blinded the Jewish people. Now Paul, having said these things, teaches us again the incredible difference between work salvation as the Jews had hoped to obtain and true salvation in Christ. And the way he does this is one of the most beautiful passages to me in the book of Romans. Look at this, just the way he talks. In verse 5, This is what the law says. This is what a works-based justification says. Moses describeth the righteousness which is of the law, that the man which doeth those things shall live by them. I love how other translations, and even how the Spanish translation reads. We are to understand this in this passage, that if you are to obtain salvation through the law, it requires a perfect, perfect righteousness, a perfect adherence, a perfect obedience. The only way is to live by it. It, it, It's it's to do it. And if you can't live up to the standard of righteousness of the law, then you are condemned by it. Now this is the mindset. This is the Jewish mentality and this is the religious mentality of all the religions of the world apart from Christianity. That you must, you must somehow be good enough through your effort and through your sweat and your blood and your tears somehow achieve righteousness on your own. Some eight centuries ago, there was a a Greek playwright. His name was Homer. He wrote several famous works. You've heard of the Iliad and the most famous, the Odyssey. And he lays out in his fictional story, it's really a beautiful high epic tale of Greek mythology, but he lays out the story of Odysseus, the king of Ithatak. And Odysseus leaves off for ten years to fight in the Trojan War representing his country. 
And then for another 10 years, he tries to make it home. And he goes through all of these perilous situations. He has to fight monsters and, and even deal with temptations along the way. And all sorts of tragedy befall him until he finally makes it home to his wife and to his family. And this is sort of what religion teaches. That enable for you to be accepted by God and to be declared righteous by God, enable for you to obtain final salvation, you have to be able to climb the highest mountain and to fight the strongest monsters. And by your own efforts, somehow at the end of the day, you'll you'll pull through and you'll obtain righteousness. Works-based salvation and all religion in the world apart from Christianity is this. It's a spiritual celestial odyssey, odyssey, trying to finally get there and always confronted with your own sin, your own unworthiness, and you're never able to obtain the desired end, salvation. Many people think that that's what salvation is. In Mexico, so full of religion and Roman Catholicism, most people think this is what salvation is. Day in and day out, being obedient, and at the end of the day, you have no hope, no assurance of salvation. No, no, no trustworthy means of determining that you are, in fact, declared righteous before God. No hope, no security. That's what works-based salvation is, just an odyssey of ups and downs and imperfection. And somehow you have to convince yourself that you're able to make it. But the gospel, in contrast to work salvation, and in contrast to this impossible celestial odyssey, the gospel brings salvation to us and it's reachable. Look at this in verse number 6. Paul describes what the law would require for us to obtain salvation through our own efforts and merits. But in contrast, look at this. The righteousness which is of faith speaks on this wise. Say not in thine heart, who shall ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down from above. Or who shall ascend into the deep? That is to bring up Christ again from the dead. But what saith it? The word is nigh. Even in thy mouth and in thine heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. That if you'll confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Brethren, works-based salvation, the problem which I hope is obvious to you is that you and I can never be good enough. Works-based religion is like the Odyssey. It's fiction. It's like a work of Greek high fantasy. It's like trying to climb the tallest mountain or to swim to the deepest trench in the sea. You simply cannot do it. You have not enough strength to do it. And even if you, after a lifetime of effort, had been found faithful in obeying the commandments, you cannot do away with your sin. It's fiction. And if you believe you can obtain salvation by your own works, you've been greatly deceived. You only are deceived. You overestimate the value of your own effort and works and you underestimate the depravity of your sin. Salvation is not at the end of some great celestial odyssey which we must undergo to be able to reach it. And that is what the Jews held to in essence. 
day in and day out, grueling obedience under a law, which their own nature was opposed to. It's only by regeneration that our hearts are inclined to righteousness. That's what the Apostle John says. His commandments are not grievous to us. Why can a Christian say that? Because God has changed his heart and inclined his heart unto righteousness, unto the righteousness which is of the law, as Romans 8, 1-4 teaches, that the, the righteousness of the law would be manifest in us who walk according to the Spirit. But day in and day out, struggling and toiling under the weight of the law which you cannot obey. That's what religion is. And it promises no hope of salvation. But the message of the gospel is that salvation, that real forgiveness of sin, that a a true right standing before God, that a restored communion with our Creator and all the benefits of redemption, it's not far away. It's not some celestial odyssey, odyssey which you have to go through grueling and, and sweating and toiling to try to achieve. No, salvation is made nigh. It is made close because there is one who has taken upon himself to do everything for us. And his name is Christ, Jesus. He has lived a life of perfect obedience that you and I never could. He has, as if... They were jumped up and reached the the stars. He has descended into the earth. He has been buried. He has risen from the dead. Christ has done all of it for you. And this is the message of the gospel that salvation is not unreachable, but it is close in Jesus Christ. It's as close as a whisper. It's as close as crying out to Him. Salvation has been made close. Ask not who shall ascend. That is to bring down Christ. That's not who shall descend into the depths. That is to bring up Christ from the dead. What says it? The word is nigh. On your lips and your mouth. That if you'll confess and believe on Christ, you'll be saved. Salvation is close because Jesus has lived in our place. He has died in our place. Christ has borne on His shoulders the perfect obedience to God and to His law. And He's done all of these things in place of the sinner and in favor of the sinner. And therefore, Christ has brought salvation close. It is near to you. And it's near to me. It's as if it were already on the tip of your tongue. It's on your heart. If you would cry out to Him and believe on Him and turn from your sin, He will be your Savior. And He promises to do so to all those who will trust on Him. Now, this is a gospel message. And it's so opposed to the message of religions around the world and anything that teaches that man can somehow contribute to his own salvation. And being that way, there is a certain responsibility that those of us who know the gospel bear concerning those in the world around us. Look in verse 14. This is our responsibility as local churches and in missions. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? How shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? How shall they hear without a preacher? How shall they preach except they be sent as it is written? How beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. They have not all obeyed the gospel, for Isaiah saith, Lord, who hath believed our report? So then faith cometh by hearing, 
and hearing by the word of God. I'd like to close with this. Salvation is made close because Christ has come and Christ has lived and Christ has died and Christ has been resurrected from the dead and Christ is approved by God as Lord and Savior and Christ at the end of the day is what has pleased God. Not your own works, not anything that you can contribute. God isn't at all impressed. But Christ is beloved by His Father and if you are in Him, you are accepted. You are beloved You are cleansed. You are clothed with His righteousness. But this message, this urgent message which the world has rejected, which natural man cannot believe, it must be shared. We bear the responsibility of taking the news of our Lord who has gone so great distances. Christ who has ascended and descended and rose again. Christ who has lived and died under the law. Christ who is our obedience and our righteousness and our sanctification and our wisdom Christ who has gone to so great lengths has commended to us the ministry of reconciliation to preach the gospel to the world I pray that you would be faithful to that and that you would pray for our work in Mexico as we strive to be faithful to share this message let's pray and then I'll turn the service over to your pastor Father We thank you so much for your goodness and your grace. We thank you for Christ. We thank you because Christ is beloved of God and that he has done everything necessary to achieve our salvation. So pleasing to God was his sacrifice that he could say assuredly, it is finished. Not an ounce of obedience. Not an ounce of satisfaction. More was needed for our sin debt. He paid it all. We thank you for the value and the worth of Christ. Then who could please his father with one sacrifice for all. We pray Lord that you would help us to be faithful. As stewards of this message. To spread it the world around us there are lost family members and friends and co-workers there may even be lost among us this morning not all Israel are Israel so we pray father that you would help us to be faithful in sharing the gospel and trusting God to bless the means of grace which he's given us Lord uh, we pray that you would help us to live to the glory of Christ who has done so much to purchase our redemption And we ask all these things in Jesus' name.